0: Welcome to the Beacon Podcast. I'm your host, Angie Sura, VP of Compliance with NavigateHCR. Each month, we will be navigating the seas of compliance trends and topics. So grab a life vest, sit back, and enjoy the ride. Hello and welcome to the October 2020 edition of the Beacon Podcast. This is Angie Sura, VP of Compliance for NavigateHCR. Today, we're going to talk about tracking your variable hour employees. I can't believe we are already in October. Where has this crazy year even gone? All I know is we are gearing up for 2020 ACA reporting. And when I talk about ACA reporting, which I do on a regular basis, it's important that we also add to that conversation are we tracking our variable hour population? The Affordable Care Act requires that applicable large employers to offer affordable, minimum health coverage to their benefit-eligible employees, or they're going to pay a penalty. That employer mandate is also known as the employer-shared responsibility or those pesky pay-or-play rules. The IRS is still auditing at a rapid pace. In its official, I started seeing audit letters for 2018 filing. Now, the employer shared responsibility rules, of course, took effect back in January of 2015. Previously, applicable large employers meant employers with 100 or more full-time equivalent employees. But of course, they did change that back in 2016 to employers with 50 or more full-time equivalent employees. So to prepare for compliance in 2020, it's really important for employers to make sure they're aware of what their options are with regard to measuring and tracking your variable hour employees. And the reason it's important is even though you may have employees that you classify as part-time The IRS classifies them as variable hour, and in the event a part-time or variable hour employee meets or exceeds the minimum number of hours, they do become benefit eligible. Failure to offer them benefits if and when they become eligible will result in a penalty. Penalties are very steep. An employer can use one of two methods to determine whether employees are considered benefit-eligible under the employer shared responsibility rules. We have the monthly measurement method. This method determines full-time or benefit-eligible status for each calendar month based on the employee's hours of service in that month. The lookback measurement method determines full-time status or benefit-eligible status for a longer period of time based on average hours of service During a prior period. Now, just a heads up, the monthly measurement method is way more burdensome administratively. Most employers that I work with opt for the look back measurement period. Now, just recently, on August 24th, the Department of Labor issued a bulletin to remind employers of their obligation to accurately account. For the number of hours their employees work away from the employer's facilities. So we all know in this crazy time that we're living in with COVID-19 that a lot of the workforce is working remotely. While the bulletin was issued in response to this situation of remote work, the DOL is also reminding employers that the underlying principles apply to other telework or remote work arrangements. When we talk about compensable time, The Fair Labor Standards Act requires employers to compensate their employees for all hours of work. Compensable time includes any hours an employee is requested or allowed to work, and that includes telework or remote work. For remote work situations, the Bulletin clarifies that compensable time includes any time during which the employer knows or has reason to believe work is being performed, regardless of whether the work was authorized or requested. Now keep in mind, employers are not required to undertake impractical efforts to uncover unreported hours when employees fail to report unscheduled work through a reasonable process. Now let's get back to measurement again. In general, an applicable large employer must use the same measurement method for all employees. So that means an employer generally cannot use monthly measurement for employees with predictable hours of service, and a look-back measurement for employees whose hours of service vary. However, an employer may use different measurement methods for employees who are in different categories. So, for example, categories that can be treated differently may be hourly employees versus salaried employees. Now, to me, that's probably not very common because generally salary employees are hired with the expectation of full time. Therefore, they don't need measured. They need to fall under your traditional waiting period. Let's talk about some other categories. Collectively bargained and non-collectively bargained employees or employees whose primary places of employment are in different states. Those are just a few, but I'm sure there are more. Let's do a brief overview of the look back measurement period as I mentioned, it's far more common. So if you think about the text of the Affordable Care Act when it was passed, we all know that an employer cannot make an employee wait more than 90 days to be offered benefits if they're hired as full-time, which is more than 30 hours a week. The IRS created this look-back measurement method as an optional alternative to the monthly measurement, so that you can have greater predictability and stability for determining full-time status. So the look-back measurement method involves a measurement period for counting hours of service. This is called your standard measurement period, or an initial measurement period for your new hires, depending on the circumstances. There's an optional administrative period that allows time for enrollment and disenrollment, and then the stability period, during which coverage is provided if the employee averages those benefit-eligible hours during the prior measurement period. So a great example would be, oftentimes, those in the restaurant industry. When they're establishing their measurement period, they often use a 12-month measurement. That means they're going to measure employees over a 12-month period. Now, that period can be any period that they designate. It could be a calendar year, or they can Establish it so that it falls perfectly in line with their traditional benefits renewal date. Now, if an employer is selecting a 12-month measurement period, that means that during that 12 months, which we have established, if an employee works 1,560 hours or more, they become benefit eligible. Measurement period can be anywhere from 3 months all the way up to 12 months. It really just depends on your industry. The administrative period can be either 30 or 60 days, and that's the amount of time that the employer has internally to make the offer of benefits, collect all the paperwork, enter the information on their online platform, all of those different things. The stability period must be at least six months long. The stability period is the time that the employee may remain on benefits regardless if their hours in this current year go down drastically. Because remember, while an employee is in their stability period, the hours they're working are being measured to determine whether or not they can remain on the benefits at the end of the stability period. So in our earlier example, we talked about a 12-month measurement period. If an employer establishes a 12-month measurement period, their stability period needs to be 12 months. So as you can imagine, and this is without me showing any graphics, just talking about it, it gets to be very complex. It is virtually impossible, I would wager, to try and do this measurement using an Excel template. Now, although the standard measurement period is established, so let's say, for example, January 1st through December 31st, that only works for your ongoing employees. That would be employees who have been with you at least one full measurement cycle. Every time there is a new hire of a variable hour employee, that new hire gets their own initial measurement period. Now, eventually that intersects into an ongoing measurement period. But as you can see, if you have a lot of turnover and a lot of variable hour new hires, you could be running hundreds of different measurements throughout a year. Now, although the IRS doesn't require employers to document their measurement method, ERISA requires that you enter that information into your summary plan descriptions, which we know is a whole conversation unto itself. Maintaining a description of the selected measurement method and a record of the method's outcome, so that would be reports for all individuals that are variable hour and need to be measured, is really going to help an employer demonstrate its compliance with the employer shared responsibility rules and avoid a penalty. So, for instance, if the IRS notifies an employer of its potential liability for a penalty because an employee received a premium tax credit, the employer will want to have documentation showing that either the employee was offered health coverage that meets the ACA standards and declined, or that the employee was not offered coverage because they were not full-time or benefit eligible. Those monthly tracking reports are what is going to be your best defense against an audit. Now, due to the unique workforce structure of educational organizations, these rules include special averaging methods, under which employers of educational organizations who work full-time during the active portions of the academic year will generally be treated as full-time for purposes of the ACA Employer Shared Responsibility. But let's not forget about our variable hour employees in educational organizations, like our substitute teachers. They should be measured, especially during a crazy time that we're in now where you may have substitutes that end up working a full academic year this year. So long story short, guys, utilizing proper measurement periods is critical to avoid the costly fines and fees associated with noncompliance. Thanks, and happy navigating!